we begin a brand new book of the Bible, Judges. Judges is a wild cautionary tale about what it looks like when God's people forsake his word, will, and ways. It's gonna, we're going to see it repeatedly over and over and over that the people of God t- tend to choose what they feel is, quote, right in their own eyes. And we're going to see this refrain. And it's going to be building. Today it's going to start off where things look kind of decent. They're going to start kind of heading south. And the further and further and further we get into the book of Judges, we're going to find out like there is, uh, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So this story doesn't get better throughout time. It gets worse. But it does point to something better. His name's Jesus. And so it, the, this book, Old Testament book, is, uh, I've never seen it necessarily preached verse by verse through the entire book. I'm not saying it hasn't, but uh, typically what people do is they take characters in Judges and preach about the characters in Judges. We're going to cover everything. The entire uh, series will take about 23 weeks. It is a narrative, so we're going we're gonna to cover large chunks of Scripture verse by verse. By the end, we'll have covered the entire book of Judges. Additionally, to help you with your study, I, we created a study guide for you. It's available for purchase out in the back, but also you can. we have a free PDF for you. If you want to uh, do that, Pastor Axe will show us later uh, uh, a QR code. You can get it on our website for free. Um, but let's get on into it. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. And so you can keep that. We're going to, before we jump into the text, what I want to do is set the setting a little bit. Most of today will be a lot about setting and understanding the context of where we find ourselves in this book of the Bible. Um, We need to rewind all the way back for briefly for a moment. The beginning of Genesis, there was a man named Abraham who God called and he saved. This man did not grow up in a Christian home. He got saved. Uh, uh, He was not a, he was a godless man and, and, and God saves him. Not just saves him, but he changes him. He renames him. He gives him a new future, uh, and he tells him a few things. He tells him he's going to have he's going to have children. Uh, his wife was barren, so that was going to be a miracle. He's going to have children. Furthermore, he was going to give him a, 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 he was going to become a nation, and then they were going to possess a land. Up to throughout Genesis, you see them becoming a nation. God's people becoming a nation, but a nation with no land, a people with no land. And so the promise that God gave Abraham uh, hasn't hadn't been fulfilled yet. By the time the book of Genesis ends, they still needed the land. You get into Exodus, what you find that's the second book of the Bible. Bible is you see that there's this man Moses who's setting God's people, who God calls to set his people free from Egyptian slavery to go possess that land, the land of promise. They leave slavery in Egypt and they go to possess the promised land that God has, has, has said. He promised to Abraham. So we're looking at like 430 to 500 years of human history from the original promise to the possessing of the land. They're going to possess this land, God's people, through a leader named Joshua. He's the one who follows Moses. And so uh, Joshua, this is where we're going to pick up. We're going to look in Joshua chapter 24. I'm gonna, I want us to see what happens before Joshua commissions God's people to inherit the land. This is very important. This comes at the very end of the book of Joshua, and it says this. I'm going to give you the highlights of this, this epic speech, this epic speech as, he, as God's people begin to possess the land that God had given them, the land of promise. He says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. What this means is to worship him, worship God alone. Fear is to not to just be afraid of him, but to be in awe of him, be, to, to worship him with our emotions. And then furthermore, to worship with our actions, to serve him. And so what does that look like? He says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and, and serve the Lord. So 
forsake any other God, worship God alone. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve. So Joshua, before they go partake in the, the partake the uh, and, and, and possess the promised land, he says, oh, we're going to decide today, who are we going to worship? Are we going to worship the God of the Bible or are we going to worship false gods? You're, if you want to be God's people, we worship God, the one true and living God. And he says this, uh, Choose the day who you will serve, whether you will serve the gods of the, uh, our, uh, our, your father served. These are the non-pagan, these are the pagan gods beyond the region and the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua, the leader, is leading God's people saying, hey, we're going to serve the Lord. Me, my family, we're serving the Lord. I'm inviting the rest of God's people to serve and worship the one true and living God because God demands our complete and total worship of him. Moved it to verse 20, and verse 22, he continues his speech, and he says, if you forsake, here's what's going to happen, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn, uh, uh, then he will turn in you and do you harm and consume you after doing all after he has done good. So what has happened is he's, he's saying that God has been kind to you. He has set you free from slavery. He's, he's led you into the land of promise. He's been loving. He's been patient. He's been kind. He loves you. He has saved you. If you forsake him and worship other gods, what's going to come for you when you, if you reject him is, is, is to be consumed, is punishment. And the same is true for us in, in our day, in our age. And when, when Jesus returns, when, when Jesus returns finally, when there is, no more, uh, there is no more time in human history, when that comes to an end and is completed, those, of, those who reject Jesus, he will consume them and punish them eternally. And so he's saying, don't forsake the Lord, obey the Lord. In verse 21, he says, uh, and then when the, people of, uh, when the people said to Joshua, so they, they heard this and said, we will serve the Lord. Their response was, we're going to worship the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that, God, uh, that you have chosen the Lord to, ser- to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. In verse 28, he said, Joshua then says, so Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So this is this epic speech right before God's people are going to possess this land. We need to, if you need to take a screenshot of this in your mind of what happened, refer to back to these verses, because this is going to play a part of, of understanding what happens from here on out in Judges. They have vowed, they promised, we're going to worship the God of the Bible. We're going to forsake all other gods. We're not going to worship the gods of the land in which we're about to possess. We are going to worship the one true and living God. And they said, we're witnesses. If we don't do this, then God should. We should expect that God should show up and, 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 uh, uh, and deal harshly with us, to consume us, do us harm. After he's done such great good to us, if we take his grace and then sin willfully, we should expect that God would return um, his promise that he says to us that he will, he will, he will you know, frustrate us, he will confuse us, he will, uh, uh, I mean, he will punish us is what I'm, what I'm saying. So that's the context here. That's the context. If they don't obey, they should expect ruin and misery. And so now we pick up in Judges chapter 1. That's, that's, that's the promise where they're about to head into the promised land. That's what's going on. Judges chapter 1 begins with the death of Joshua. The death of Joshua. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up, uh, go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord, 
and, and the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. This is, this is great. This is awesome start to the book. I want us to see. After the death of Joshua, God's people, uh, they inquire of the Lord. Now, it's important for us to understand who Joshua is. We heard his great speech there prior uh, to, to entering into Judges 1, but, but Joshua was the, uh, he was not just a great leader, but he, was, he rode the coattails of another great leader, Moses. And so uh, he is, he's a leader with a great legacy. One commentator said this about Joshua. It says that uh, Joshua had been the greatest man of his generation, and those who knew him aspired to be like him. So he was a man who the, the people of God were looking to, not just for leadership, they wanted to to be like him and so he was well trained under Moses we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 9 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit where we're told quote he had the he was full of the spirit of wisdom and so that he did according to God's word will and ways and this is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey Jesus and to obey his word and now Joshua this great leader is dead there's a great leadership gap. Think of any great leader you've followed in your lifetime, and then when they're no longer in play, there's this leadership gap. There's this vacuum of leadership here. And most times when there's a vacuum of leadership, there's people rising up to, to power, people who, who are proud and arrogant and selfish, and they want power for themselves. But this is not what we see happening here. In this huge leadership gap, what do God's people do? They inquire of the Lord. They seek the Lord. They want to know God's will, not just their opinion. They want to know what God has to say, not just the opportunity he has. See, all of us can have throughout our lifetime various opportunities. God can put, or there can be opportunities before us all often. And it, but the question is not what opportunity is before you. The question is, what does the Lord have for you? And so they, they know that they're going to, they're supposed to possess this land. Their, their leader has died. So what do they do? They go to the Lord in prayer. They, they, they consult the will of the, of the Lord. They, quote, inquire of the Lord. See, what Joshua did was he taught his people and taught the people of God who the true commander-in-chief was. It wasn't him. It was Yahweh. It was the God of the Bible. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was, it was, it was the Lord, the Lord himself. So this is vitally important. And this is one thing I want us to know at the church. We say it frequently, but, but Jesus is the true lead pastor of this church. It's our job to follow suit under his, his will and ways. We're to submit to him and hold ourselves accountable and, and one another accountable to his word. He's the leader. And so this is what God's people do, which I think is really awesome and a great start to the book. They, they inquire of the Lord and hope it would be known for us that we'd be the type of people, the type of church that, that teach one another to seek the will of the Lord, to inquire the will of the Lord. This is, this is clearly what was taught and modeled by Joshua. He taught them how to do it. Therefore, in his absence, they're not looking around going, who's our leader? They're going, God is. He always was. He always will be. And so we need to plug into the source. We need to hear from God. We need a word from God so that we know how to proceed forward and march forward. And God gives them. He, he speaks. He responds in verse 2. He says, Judah shall go up first. That's who shall go up first. He's, he, God has chosen one tribe to go up first to possess this land. And one, what, another thing I want us to see before we move forward is that when it says, uh, when you read Israel, especially throughout our entire study of the book of Judges. When you read the word Israel, I want you to think in your mind God's people. I don't want you to think of the nation state. I don't want you to think about what's going on in, in, in the Middle East right now. What I want you to think is God's people. Right now, they have no land. 
Now, it is interesting. They are gonna, they're possessing the land that is being fought over right now in, in, in the world. But, but uh, what I want us to see here is right now they're, they're, they're about to enter into the land. They're entering in and they're possessing the land. And so when you see Israel, I want you to think these are God's chosen people. These are God's people. And so um, God's people have a, have, a, have a task that he and God has a particular plan for his people. And he tells them that he wants Judah to go up and fight first. That's what he says. So after Joshua, God's people seek the Lord. God responds. And now, he, now they're going to obey what he says. And so uh, verse 3. Next what we see is God's people, they're going to work together. They're working together. And, and Judah and Simeon, his brother, came up with me, uh, or come, he, said, he said to his brother, I mean, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you to the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. So I want you to see this. He's not going, hey, uh, I'm going to disobey God. Judah's not, the tribe of Judah is not saying, we're going to go disobey God, and so I need to get, you know, Simeon because I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. He's saying, no, like, let's work together. He said, let's Judah, Simeon, brothers, let's go possess the land, and we're going to take the land. We're going to do what God told me for this land, and then I'm going to come help you. This is, I want you to see God's people working together. I want you to see Simeon and Judah more, more like a two tribes. Uh, there are two tribes, and there's 12 tribes total, but I want you to think about them more like denominations, right? And Christian denominations are day and age. Like Judah and Simeon have their own problems, and they, they have their own issues, just like any denomination has in this world in this day. So there's Christian, you know, some, some people are like, well, I'm just non-denominational. Whatever, that's a denomination of itself. It is. What I'm saying is different groupings of Christians want to self-identify in various ways, Totally cool, not against it. What I'm saying is they're on the same team. If they know, love, and trust Jesus, even if they operate or, or, or believe some things that may disagree with you, uh, I want us to see that we need to be on the same team and the same mission. See, we will deviate from other denominations or people or churches when they edit God's word. But when they proclaim God's word and we may disagree on some points, we're cool. As long as we're keeping to the mission, the same God, the same faith, the same Jesus, the same mission, we need to be unified with. And so it, the same is true within the, the context of the church. Uh, individuals here, not everyone here agrees on every single point of theology. That's okay. But we agree on Jesus. We agree on his mission. We agree on his word, will, and ways. We submit to him. And so uh, with brother and sister, we can, we make it, we're not in competition with one another. I want you to see this. They're not in competition with one another. They both see their calling, and so they're both helping one another fulfill the mission that God gave them. The language we like to use here at the well is we want to follow Jesus, we want to fight sin, and we want to fulfill the mission. And we want to help one another do that. That's what we do in our discipleship. We want to help one another follow Jesus. So uh, your, your brother and sister in Christ in, in, in this church, they're not in competition with you in following Jesus. Like, if they're, if they're victorious, then awesome. Praise God, you're victorious. Like, that's awesome. We're one team. Uh, furthermore, we want to fight sin together. So sometimes you have had victory in certain areas, and other Christians need to come alongside, or you need to come alongside other Christians and help them have victory in other areas. This is what we see working together, both Simeon and Judah, fulfilling God's mission. So we want to be a church here in a community here that will help people follow Jesus, fight our sin, and fulfill the mission of Jesus, what he's called us to do. So God's people here in verse 3, they're working together. They're working together. Verse 4, it's next what we see is that I want to see that not, uh, tyrants are not all-powerful. Tyrants are not all-powerful. What, what we're about to get into, uh, and I'll preface it this way, is going to be a little bit gruesome. 
Uh, it's going to be gruesome, but it's going to be nothing compared to the, the, how gruesome it's going to get further on in Judges. And i just give you a fair warning. Like, this is, if this were a movie, this would be like, you know, you know, rated R. Like, it really is, uh, it, it is wild. And this is, some of you are like, well, really? Uh, why would you preach it? Well, it's in the Bible. It's God's Word. It's profitable for teaching. What we're told, the Scriptures, all Scripture is. And so what we see is, uh, next is, tyrants are not all powerful. Verse 4, then Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Now, notice they went up to fight them, but who, who gave them the victory? The Lord. The Lord gave them the victory. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Bezek is a city in a Canaanite region, and it's an, it's an area uh, in, in the Canaanite region. And so they defeated him, them at the city. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, the city, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut off, this is where it gets weird, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings and their thumbs and their big toes cut off uh, used, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so as, as that wicked tyrant king has done, God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against uh, Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly uh, Kiriarth Arba. Uh, and they defeated uh, Shishai and Ahiman and Tal- Talmai. That's, that's what's going on here. So the, what, what do I mean here by not all, uh, or tyrants are not all powerful? How do I get that from this text? What is that? What do we mean by that? Well, this guy, the Canaanites and Perizzites, these are these pagan nations who continue to seduce, who will, who will throughout our time in Judges, and will continue to seduce God's people to worship uh, their gods over the God of the Bible, to worship false gods. Uh, and they will lead them astray from the one true and living God. That's, that's one thing to know about them. But number two, they're led by this leader who claims to be God. This, he's this tyrannical leader who cuts off his, his enemy's thumbs and big toe so that they can't fight in battle. That's the type of leader he is. He, 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 he wants to exercise power through, uh, uh, he wants to maintain power by, by, you know, mutilating his enemies. This is what he's doing. Is the word Adonai Bezek, why do I say he, he claims to be God? Adonai is the name for God. This is, he's, he's claiming to be God. This is important. And I don't have time. I have to be, you know, strict to state of the text because, uh, or state of my, my notes because we, we we got a lot to cover here in these verses. But uh, any president or any 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 person or any one in history, uh, especially moving forward, if you ever hear anyone like going, "Hey, I, I'm 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 the type of leader. I'm God," not a good guy, not a good guy. This is blasphemy. This is not okay. The Lord of Bezek, that's what he's saying. He's saying he sees himself as God. This is very similar to what you'll find out later through the scriptures or in, 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 in previous, back in Jud- or Exodus, that uh, the, the, the Egyptian Pharaoh thought he was God too. Saw themselves as these deities. And so what we see here is that God is delivering justice to uh, in righteousness in this moment, in, in divine retribution. This is not vengeance that's happening here. 
See, them getting their thumbs and toes cut off, we see in verse 7 that it is, uh, he is being paid back what he has dished out to others. His tyrannical leadership and what he has done to others has now been done to him, and he realizes it. So he says, as I have done, God has repaid me. This false teacher, this, this godless man, this guy who thinks he's better than God, is coming to a, a, a reckoning in this moment and realizing like, oh, I've done this to them. Now it's being done back to me. God has done this. He's not blaming Israel or God's people. I want you to see this. He's not, he's not looking around going, look at, oh, look at what horrific uh, war crime you did to me. He's saying, no, God has done this to me because I have stood in his place and rebelled against him and, been, and, and harmed other people unjustly. Now God's justice has been turned towards me. So I want us to see here what's happening is not uh, revenge. This isn't revenge by God's people. This is divine retribution. Adonai Bezek has been a cruel and wicked ruler, and now he recognizes God's justice towards him and his punishment. And so for, for us, for Christians, uh, some of you may think, like, okay, what, how, do we, how do we deal with verses like this uh, uh, in light of the cross of Christ? Like, didn't Jesus say that, like, love your enemies and do good to them? Um, he, he, he definitely did. He did. And so what I want us to see is that m- most of what we read in Judges is not necessarily prescriptive, but descriptive about what happened. This isn't like, hey, all right, God's people, go out and anyone you know, who's against you, cut off their thumbs. Like, that's not what he's saying. He does tell Christians, though, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. So, you know, we can deal with that one later. But uh, he, he's not, what we're seeing here is, is, not a, uh, is not revenge. It's not individual, see this, it's not individual private citizens taking out vengeance in their own way. This is a war between nations, and I want you to see this, by, uh, and, and God is going to bring justice to the uh, godless nation, and to the rebellious people, but he's also going to use this moment as provision for his own people. So he's bringing righteous judgment upon Adonai Bezek, and in doing so, he's also providing land for his people that he had promised. So this passage shows us, I want you to see, this passage shows us that, that, uh, that tyrants are not all powerful. What does this mean? I, Adonai Bezek is not all powerful. When God wanted to step in and dispossess his land, he did. He did. So there's no nation in our world today or will ever be that has absolute supreme autonomy and authority over the God of the Bible. God is sovereign. He's the true ruler. And so what we see here is that unless tyrants, unless they repent, they trust Jesus, they trust the God of the Bible, God will call them into account. Whether in this life or in the life to come, they will be called into account. All forms of oppression, all forms of corruption, all forms of evil, there will be a day of reckoning for And God himself will oversee it, and he will judge precisely, and perhaps even do that before the end comes, in this day and in this age. And so what I want us to see here is that that God is not just calling these tyrants to repent. They're also saying they're not God, and they're not all-powerful, but he is, and he he will bring them to their knees. And so what we see here is that, additionally, that God's people then share in the victory that God has over them by possessing this land. And so there's a day coming 
This scene should be a warning for, for, for any leader, any ruler, in, in any nation, in any time. This should be a warning that, that God will bring justice. And all corruption, all oppression will cease. And so leaders, any leader in any capacity should repent, submit to Jesus, submit to his word, will, and ways, and lead accordingly lest divine retribution come upon you. Next, fighting tyrants, we're going to look at the context of marriage and family. Um, let, me, let me build the case by reading verses 11 through 15 first. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Shepher, uh, and Caleb said, "Who? Uh, this is what Caleb, one of the... Uh, leaders of God's people, he says, who, he who attacks Kiriath-Sephir uh, and captures it, I will give him Oxa, his, my daughter, to be his wife. And Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave Oxa, his uh, daughter, to, for a wife. Verse 14, when she came to him, meaning to Caleb, she urged him, or, or she came to her husband, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also spring, uh, springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So what's happening is, is the, the battle keeps going forward. They keep, they, keep, they keep marching forward, and there's this leader, Caleb. Caleb was a, a servant uh, or a friend and a compatriot of, of uh, Joshua. They're buddies. They're, they're godly men uh, who do God's word, will, and ways, and they're following uh, the God of the Bible and his mission. And so Caleb and Joshua uh, have been following the Lord together. God is calling his people to uh, possess this land. And in doing so, Caleb says this, my wife, in order to possess this land, if we're going to possess this land, then we need to put people in this land. And in order to have people, we've got to uh, have have marriages and families and multiplication there. Because that's how inhabitants work. I need you to understand that, right? Like, you can't, if you enter into a land and you don't multiply, like, Eventually, that land's not yours. God didn't just give his people land in order to uh, just simply occupy it for a generation, but periodically throughout the scripture, God is calling uh, repeatedly his people to multiply, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion and exercise rule over that. And so when they're possessing this land, there's got to be marriages and family started. So Caleb, getting towards the end of his life, wants the, his, his, his daughter to marry. He gives a, 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 a proposition. Anyone who takes the city, they, he will give uh, his daughter in marriage. This is what's going on here. And so Othaniel, this guy, we're going to learn more about him in the coming weeks, but, but briefly here, what we see him, he's going to enjoy the favor of the Lord. He's going to rise up and enjoy the favor of the Lord. As God is calling these rebellious nations to repentance uh, and, 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 and calling them to account, he's, he's calling his people to share in the victory. And so he's going to use Othaniel, this, this brave warrior in battle, to seal this victory here. Why is this important? Because what Othaniel sees, what he sees is he sees this opportunity to not, not, while he's serving the will of God, following his mission, to get a wife. We're told in Proverbs, he finds a good wife, finds a good thing. He's like, this is a good opportunity. I'm doing God's will, and I want to get married. And she's from Caleb's line. This is, this is like godly lineage. Like, this is a godly woman. This is awesome. He rises up to battle. It, it, it was a brave warrior. He gets a wife. 
which is awesome. Uh, and then he also marries a woman who, who's, a, who's a godly woman, who, who's from a godly legacy, from the lineage of Caleb, who was, who was, who was uh, like I said, buddies with Joshua in the beginning with, no, with Moses. Fourth, what we see is that his wife, she's a real helper. She's, she's very practical. She's like, if we get this land in the Negev, we need water, rivers of water. Why is this important? Well, because the Negev is dry. To get land in the Negev, which is the east, it's the dry east land. If you, didn't, if you weren't near water, then there was no point of having this land. What we, what we don't necessarily see it in the first reading of this is that uh, what's going on here is this husband and wife uh, complementary combo happening in the very beginning of, of this book of Judges. That, that they're going to possess this land. In order to possess this land, they need uh, uh, people who are going to multiply in this land. I want you to see this very. This is real logical here. That if they're going to possess this land, they don't just need the people in that generation. They need other generations to happen. Therefore, God doesn't work through any other means by procreation except for through biblical marriage. That's His design. That's what He wants to happen. Get married, have kids. He wants to not, and it's not just marriage and have kids, but He wants marriages to be godly. They want it to be wise. The men to be like Othniel, where he leads. He sees something, he, he sees a woman he wants, he goes and he, he, he goes through whatever the requirements of the father was to possess, to have this wife. The father says, don't sleep with her, you don't sleep with her. You know who also says that? God. So he's a greater father. He's listening to the, 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 the requirements of the, the father. What do I need? I need a job. Awesome, I'm going to get a job. You need to win a victory in battle? He goes and wins the victory in battle. He's a leader. He's going to now, therefore, he provides. He's a protector. And he's not passive. I want you to see this. He's very active. He's an active leader. He takes charge. He wants a godly life. He sees the path to get it, and he goes for it. And he's godly. Moreover, he's committed to God's mission. This is awesome. He's like, we're supposed to you know, take the land. Like, I can take the land and get a wife. Like, why not? And we're supposed to take the land anyway. Like, let's take the land, and, and, and this is what I mean. He's finding favor from the Lord. Proverbs 18, 22, he who, finds a, uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's what he's doing. This is what we're seeing here is favor being obtained. The point I'm making here is that, it, and when it comes to fighting tyrants in, in marriage and family, is that uh, marriage and family were God's idea always. They were from the beginning. And they are good things, and Christians should think highly of them. And so when God's people are going to possess this land, they should be thinking about marriage and family God's ways, not according to the ways of the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, and any other ites that are in the area. They, they, they should be thinking about marriage God's way. And so this is what we see as Othniel does this. Oxa, his wife, is a, is a helper. She's a compliment. She's wise. She's shrewd. She has wisdom. She's helpful to her husband. When he would have taken the land and not necessarily got water, that would have been any guy, you know, like, hey, my wife thinks of things that I don't think of, and if I don't act on that information, then we're screwed. Like, that's how they would have been. She has a godly wife. I say this, if you want to topple kingdoms, if you want to overthrow the tyrants, Focus on marriage and family. It begins in the home. It, it starts first in the home. 
Christians, if you want to create culture, leave a lasting legacy, do you worship the God of the Bible? Does your, does your spouse worship the God of the Bible? Do your kids worship the God of the Bible? Do your grand, will your grandkids worship the God of the Bible? And not just in, in showing up to church, but in word, in deed, and how you deal with, 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 with in your relationships, how you run a business, how you create culture, how you exercise dominion in the world in which you live. Tyranny will be overthrown first in the home. This is why it's attacked in our day and our age. Marriage, family, children, gender, all under attack in our age. Why? Because that's where the, that's where the tyrants know if they can win that, they can win the war. And this is what we see going in. God's like, I, they, I know the plan. This is the way in. We're going to take the land, but we're going we're gonna to have families, God, God-driven, holy families set apart who worship the God of the Bible, who have kids who worship the God of the Bible, and then we're going to subdue the land as he told them in Genesis to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the land, and have dominion, and to, and to exercise dominion according to God's word, will, and ways. So up to this point, things are going great, right? Things are looking pretty good. Now we're about to see the unraveling. Here we go. It's just like a fast, slippery slope for the rest of the book. Here's where it all unravels. Willful disobedience. Uh, verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up to the people of Judah from the city of Palms and into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev, near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. Judah went with Simeon and his, bro- his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called uh, Hormah, and Judah also captured Gaza in its territory, and Ascalon and its, with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he, d- he could not drive out the inhabitants in the, of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron uh, was given to, to, to Caleb, and Mos- as Moses had said, and he drove out the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out. Here's where it gets wild. The, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin to this day. You know why Jerusalem's wild? Just, there you go. Um, that's another sermon. So Judah saw, he obeyed the Lord, uh, uh, and, and Simeon helped him. Now Benjamin willfully disobeys here. I want you to see when it says he did not, it doesn't mean he could not possess the land. He says, I will not do what you have said. Ever met a kid who says, hey, hey, will you stop standing on the chair? And they say, I will not. That's, what, that's disobedience. My kid, one of them, does it all the time. Gets in trouble for it. They're, they are going to as well. Uh, but I want you to see this is a willful disobedience. And it doesn't just stop with him. It continues. Verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up to Bethel, uh, and the Lord was with them. And the, the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, and, and now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, so we will deal kindly with you. And he, show, and he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city by the edge of the sword. 
but uh, they let the man and his family go. So they did what they said. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and, and called its name Luz. And it's still, and that's his name to this day. So what's happening here is Joseph spared this man's life because he gave them a good passage into the city. So they took the city. They won the city. And so I want you to see this. It says that the Lord was with them. See, God was showing kindness to this Canaanite family, this, this, this Canaanite family. He says, we're going to spare you. We're going to have grace towards you. We're going to have mercy towards you. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna destroy the city. We're going to take the city, but we're going to allow you to live in the city. We're going to allow you to have a, a peaceful passage here and, and have freedom and have life. And what does this man do with that, with that freedom? It may not seem uh, obvious on the, on the surface, but what he does is he goes into the lands of the Hittites and he builds, his, builds the city and, and calls its name Luz. What is this? He's, he's, he's going out from God's presence, from God's favor and God's kindness, and he's rebuilding a Canaanite city with a Canaanite culture. That's why it's named Luz. The, the Hebrew, it was Bethel. This is, this, is, this is the house, this is God's house. But, but now he has built an, uh, another city with Canaanite culture. What, what, what I want us to see here is that it, you can be a part of the church. You can come show up. You can hear about Christianity. You can nominally look to it. You can experience God's mercy and grace, but use it as an opportunity for idolatry. And this is what this man does. The rebellion continues. Manasseh did, verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen in its village or Tanek in its villages or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages or the inhabitants of Ebliam in its villages or the inhabitants of uh, Meg Ido in its villages for the Canaanites persist dwelling in that land. So disobedience. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, what did they do? They put the Canaanites to forced labor and did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim, which is another tribe, did not drive out the, the, out the Canaanites who lived in Gezir or the Canaanites who, who or, and so the Canaanites lived in Gezir among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or did the inhabitants of ne, uh, Nehalah or the, so, that they ha, so that the Canaanites lived among them. But because but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of uh, Alab or of Axib or of, ha- what these are crazy names, uh, Helab or of Aphix or of Rehob. So the uh, Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, and they, not, they did not drive them out. Nephtali also did not drive out the inhabitants of, of Beth, Shil, uh, Beth uh, Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Shanath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth uh, Anath became subject to forced labor. You see, the, see what's going on here. They don't obey, then they put the, the people into forced labor. We're going to talk about that in a moment. The Amorites pressed on the pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, and for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling uh, in Mount Heres and um, in Ijalon and uh, Shelabim, but. But, but the hand of the house of, of Joseph rests heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran to the ascent of Acriabim and Selah, 
and upward. I want us to see there's two things going on here. One, they did not obey God, willfully disobeyed God. They did not do the mission. They did not do the task. They chose to willfully not drive out the nations. So I want you to see this. that When it says they did not drive out the nations, this implies complete willful disobedience. They chose not to obey. Not that they were overcome and lost because they, they, they did not obey. How do we know this? Well, because God said he had given the land into their hand. The favor of the Lord was upon them. They just merely needed to obey, and they would have succeeded. So they chose to look at the, 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 perhaps the, the hard possibility of conquering this land and the, these people and said, this is too hard for us. We don't want to do it. We're lazy. Or we just really like these people and we just don't want to obey God. It's just the point is they willfully disobeyed. They chose to not complete the mission. This is what we would call a sin of omission, meaning they did not do what they were supposed to do. Some of you, maybe this is news to you, this, that's a sin. If God says to do something and you don't do it, that's sin. It's a sin of omission. We usually think of sin, uh, the sin of commission. What do we do? Sin is something I've done. Uh, it, so sin can also be what is left undone, what is not done. Jesus, and I'll put it this way for us, Jesus has given us, his New Testament people, a mission, right? To make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded, correct? Are you fulfilling the mission Jesus has given you? Some of you think about the Great Commission as a suggestion, and it's become omission. It's become omission. I'm sure some of these people were like, maybe the leaders were, were willfully disobeying, and then, and then by proxy, some of the, the, the other people in the region, they're just like, oh, well, if they're not going to obey, we're not going to obey. Like, it's just, it's just God has grace towards us. We've seen him be grace, gracious, Sin of omission is also sin. It's rebellion. It's willful disobedience to Jesus and his mission. Now, next they do what we know, we know as sin of commission. It's what they did. What did they do? They enslaved the people. This is asinine and crazy. What just happened? They were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They were hated. They were beaten. They were, they were enslaved cruelly. So they thought, don't obey God. Let's just enslave these people. They can work for us. So now we see that they've, they've sinned by, by not doing what God had commanded, and they're now sinning by enslaving these people. God did not command them, go enslave the people. He said, drive them out. God cares about those people. Drive them out of the land. It's your land. Let them live. Don't enslave them. And, and those, the casualties in war, there's a war, you're, there's some that, uh, from Israel who are going to die, and there's some from these nations that are going to die, but the, the people, the, the, the citizens, don't put them to forced labor. That's what they did. Here's what I want us to see here, and here's what our nation needs to see here. If we don't heal and forgive, we will repeat the harm that was done to us generations later. Generations later. This is over uh, approximately... Uh, a few hundred years of time that has been going by. And see, there's this problem in our nation right now. And, it, and if you think about the logical outworking of the spirit of the age and things like critical theory in our day, the oppressed will become the oppressor. That's the logical outworking of it. And you see Israel, God's people, grabbing a hold of this demonic ideology 
and saying, you oppressed me. They oppressed me, so I get to oppress you. Those people are no longer here, but you're here, and we're going to oppress you. I was once depressed, now I have the right to oppress you. It's anti-gospel. It's demonic. It's a lie. We need redemption. We need forgiveness. We need heart change. We don't get that. We will repeat the sin that has been done to us towards others. The oppressed will then become the oppressor. And it will continue moving forward unless God, by his grace, steps in and stops it. Look at human history. It's repeated time and time and time again. The question then we have to really ask, ultimately, how do we sort through all this noise, all this information, all this history? Will you obey the Lord? That's the big question we have to ask. So we have to get back to the main question, will you obey the Lord? That was their problem. It's just simply obedience to the God who saved them. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt. I want you to see this. It says the angel of the Lord. You know who that is? Jesus. Anywhere in the Old Testament where you see the angel of the Lord showing up, it's, it's, a, it's a Christophany. It's, it's Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up. Also, how do we know this? He uses the term I. Who brought them out of Egypt? Not an angel, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, God himself. I want you to see God is, is, is seeing them in their disobedience. And then he shows up in real time. And he says, I brought you up from Egypt and, bought, and, and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Remember, he promised Abraham and now he's bringing it to pass through this generation. And he said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not break the covenant uh, with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. You should not worship their gods. You should destroy their, their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a, a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words, the all of the people of Israel, uh, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called on the uh, they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Jesus shows up after the majority of the tribes of of Israel, God's people, forsake His word, will, and ways. They don't do what he says. They, 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 they sin by omission and not completing the mission that, that, that he has given them. And then they enslave a people, multiple generations of people. They put them to force slavery, wicked oppression. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he says, you have not obeyed my voice. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus tells us that his sheep will hear his voice. Furthermore, he says that those who love me will obey my commands. So they heard his voice. They heard his voice. They're the sheep. They heard his voice, but they chose to not obey him. See, here's the reality. If you're, if you're a Christian, you're part of the flock of, of, of God, Jesus, you hear his voice, you know what he has said. But do you love him? Do you love him? 
Our disobedience to the commands of the Lord Jesus show a lack of love we have for Christ our Savior. I want us to see that. Oftentimes we think about obedience to Jesus as as a way to merit or earn his love and his favor. It's not true. Obedience to Jesus, we obey Jesus because we love him. How do we know that? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Do you love me? You see, in Malachi, he shows up to them as well and says, you, you, you love me. They said, we do love you. We tithe our, our dill and our mint. But he says, but you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed me. So some of you need to learn to hear the voice of the Lord this year. You need to hear his voice. You need to learn to hear his voice. You need to study his word, his will, his ways. You need to, to be very acquainted with the word of God. And others of you who are acquainted with God's word need to obey it. Well, how do I obey it, Pastor? Do I just make a checklist and do it? No, you need to love Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more you'll obey. The more you'll obey. And so at the end of the day, the issue is here, and it's repeated throughout Judges, and it will be repeated in, 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 throughout our study, but it's also repeated in our lifetime. Will you obey the Lord? Will you obey the Lord? To the degree that you're willing to obey the Lord will, be the, will, will, dicta- will, will show and reveal to you your love for the God of the Bible. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus comes down. He leaves heaven, shows up. I just I want you to picture this. Like it, it, The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ sh- comes down and he's rebuking his people. This is an act of grace. He could just wipe them out. Remember the promise back in Joshua that he would, he would devote them to misery and destruction? Right? Remember that? They said, yeah, we're witnesses of that. If we disobey, just destroy us, God. He shows up and he has grace on them. He doesn't destroy them. He corrects them. And, he, and, and as a result, what does he say? He says, those nations will, will live among you forever. They will be a snare to you. You will be tempted to worship their gods. They will seduce you to worship their gods. And if you forsake me, the God of the Bible, and worship their gods, yeah, there will be div- divine retribution coming for you. I'm not, we're not, they're going to stay among you for the remainder of human history. And the same in our day. I need us to see this. This is where our discipleship must assume, when we're discipling the next generations, we must assume that there will be a temptation to worship the God of the nations every generation that follows, no matter what that God is. Whatever God, there there will always be a temptation for God's people to be seduced into worshiping false gods, false loves, idolatry. And this is a very similar act of grace that God had in Eden, if you remember. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And what did God say? If they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened? They would die. They eat of the fruit. What happens? God shows up and spares their life. He spares their life. He doesn't, he doesn't kill them then. They die of old age later. But what does he say? Because you have sinned, the ground will now fight against you, Adam. It will be, it will be, a, it will be like thorns and thistles. It, it will be pain among you. There will be pain among childbearing for you, Eve. See, this is a very similar curse that we see that God giving his people here in Judges that he gave in, in, back in the garden. He didn't kill them. It was grace. He spared them. But then he, he punished them by telling them, hey, you're going to live among these pagan nations, and they're going to continue to seduce you. So you're gonna have to, in order to follow me, you're going to have to fight sin. 
You have to fight against it. Not fight the people, fight the, the longing of your heart. The, where, your, where your heart loves other things more than me, you're going to have to take that captive. Satan is, is right around the corner. He's looking to, to steal, kill, and destroy you, but he's also crouching like a lion looking to devour you. You've got to hold the line. You've got to fight. For the rest of your life, Christian, that is what you've got to do. Kill sin lest it kill you. It's the same thing that he told Adam. Hey, I know you're not dead, but guess what? It's gonna, it's, work's going to be hard because of sin. It's going to be a lot of labor. You're going you're to eat food by the sweat of your brow. That's an act of grace. Every time you're, you, you work hard and your hands hurt and you're sweating and you're like, man, this job is, is taxing and difficult, just remember that it could have not been if you would have obeyed me the first time. So from here on out, start obeying me, Adam. Same thing is true for God's people here. Well, uh, man, I'm getting tempted by the temple over there and that demonic God and that sex temple because that's what they're going to do. Uh, all these things are just real tempting. Every time you're tempted, just remind, just remind yourself that you have the opportunity now to choose obedience. When they chose disobedience, we now have the opportunity to be reminded every time there's temptation that you could choose obedience to the God you love. Put it simply, who will you obey? Put it simply, who will you serve? As for you and your house, will you worship the Lord? So the story of the Bible is this. We can't fix it. This is a mess we see God's people find themselves in. They cannot fix their mess. So what has happened? Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. In Judges chapter 2, he shows up. He exposes their sin. He offers them redemption, a second chance. He gives them mercy. He doesn't wipe them out. He does punish them, but he shows up as an act of grace. He will continue to show up multiple times throughout the book of Judges. He'll do furthermore throughout the book or the entire Old Testament, this, this pre-incarnate Christ showing up. But it's ultimately, the, the story of the Bible keeps telling the story of Jesus showing up in, in, in small pockets and, and moments of time. But ultimately, he will come and be fully present, fully God on, full, on this full earth. We just celebrated that through the, the birth of Jesus through Christmas where he would come and he would literally dwell among the dark rebellion that his people and chaos that they have made. He dwelled among us. Why? So that he could rescue us once and for all. We can't fix the mess. They can't fix the mess. They need Jesus. Jesus shows up and offers grace. Jesus has come. He has died in our place for our sins. He's risen victoriously from the grave, and he offers you and I mercy and grace redemption, and freedom. Our response is to give our sin to Jesus, give our lives to Jesus, give our hope to Jesus, turn from our unbelief and worship him, staying on his mission, obeying his commands because we love him. I want to pray for us. And then we're going to respond. We're going to take communion. I want us to think as we go into our time of communion, Will you obey the Lord this year? Will you seek to obey him? Will you be aware that it is possible that you are uh, sinning by omission because you don't have any love for his word, his will, and his ways? You don't really know them. You don't really seek him. You can't really hear his word. You don't know his voice. Will you commit this year to growing in understanding of God's word, will, and ways so that you can hear his voice and so that you can obey his voice? And two, those of you who do know his word, will, and ways, is there an area of your life that the Spirit of God has convicted you and you're like, okay, I'm aware now. 
I'm aware now. Like, I have not been obedient here. I have not been obedient. Choose, I will choose obedience today. Do that. Come take communion. Sing because Jesus loves you and you're forgiven. He's died for your past, present, and future sin. He doesn't look upon you with shame. So if you have shame right now, don't get rid of that in your repentance. Look to Jesus with great joy, satisfaction. Love him. Walk out of here obeying him. He loves you and you love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you bless us as we respond. May we resolve today, Lord Jesus, to worship you with our whole heart, our whole mind, and our strength. In areas that we've sinned by omission, may we repent and do what you've asked us to do. In areas where we've sinned by commission, may we, may we turn from that and stop doing what you've commanded us not to do. Moreover, Lord, may you give us a heart that, that desires to love you and that, that, that's longing to hear your voice so that you would, you would give us the spirit and power to seek you through your word that you may be found. Transform us, Lord Jesus, this year. In Christ's name, amen.